Our scripture today starts out in Matthew as we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. In Genesis 38, the story of Tamar. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Amen. He alone is worthy of our praise. We begin a new series today that will lead us through Christmas. Uh, aptly named Levi's Jeans, from the genealogy uh, that Matthew, also known as Levi, provides. And it is a fascinating genealogy, and we'll grab folks all throughout this series, and you'll be able to uh, see their stories unfold. As we do, the first one in the list is Tamar. Uh, Tamar, you'll uh, get to meet her this morning, perhaps in a way you have never done before. Julie never planned to be single at 35 years of age. As a matter of fact, for as long as she has been a teenager, since those years, she has anticipated her wedding date. She has planned her wedding. She has planned her um, her special day. She has thought and played over and over again in her mind uh, the guy who's going to be standing at the end of the aisle when those doors open and she walks down the aisle. She has in her mind chosen her dress. She knows today at this very moment who her bridesmaids would be should she meet that wonderful man who would be her Husband, yet there are not even any prospects, and she wonders why. God, where are you, and why is it that I have such a longing to be married, but that goes unfulfilled in my life? Brad never anticipated being unemployed at the age of 42. He got the word unexpectedly from his boss that he had lost his job, as it turns out, railroaded by another salesman with more ambitious dreams and goals, it seems. He sits at his kitchen table and sees the worried look on his wife's face. His children play unknowingly. They have no idea that running through Brad's mind our bills, one after another after another, and how he will pay those bills. Why, God, is his question. Both Brad and Julie have unanswered questions, unplanned outcomes, unanticipated circumstances, 
Does God care? Is he aware? Or has he somehow forgotten them? Have they slipped off the radar of God's caring heart? The answers to Brad and Julie's questions and to the questions that some of you walked in here with this morning lie in this attribute of God called his sovereignty. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty can be defined as his control over the events of human history, including your personal history, his control over the events of human history, including your personal history. In chapter 38 of Genesis, God is conspicuously silent. He only shows up twice and both times it is punitive against some evildoers. And one would read this chapter in retrospect and And maybe in light of Matthew 1 and go, okay, but if you're living in the present tense of Genesis 38, there have got to be some questions rolling through Tamar's mind as these events unfold. This morning, I want to remind you and for some of you, teach you for the very first time that God is sovereign over some um, characteristics of humanity. Uh, God is sovereign over selfishness. Judah is an Israelite. His first mistake is to marry a Canaanite. Uh, Absolutely forbidden by God to go outside of Israel to marry. But he does. He meets a Canaanite woman. They have three boys, uh, Ur and Onan and then Shelah, the, the last one. They're three boys born to them. And so as was the custom, Judah goes to find a wife for his eldest, his firstborn. And he finds Tamar. Tamar is brought into the picture in an arranged marriage. Nothing unusual about that. That's uh, read the entire book of Genesis. They all are arranged. So, so Tamar enters the scene. And then we discover some things about Ur. Ur's name in English is apt. It, he, he was full of error. Uh, So much so that um, we don't know what he did, but it was bad enough for him to be called wicked and for God to kill him. That's what happens in the part that Stephanie didn't finish reading for you. I'll share with you the whole story as it unfolds. We don't know what Tamar must have gone through being married to wicked Ur, but it wasn't good. uh, So much so that God took his life. Ur is dead. Then I must introduce to you a rather strange concept, but real in Ur's day, called leveret marriage. Leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leveret marriage. Leveret marriage meant this, all right? So try this on for a little bit of size. Leveret marriage meant that if you were married and, uh, and your husband died, his brother uh, by default became your new husband. All right, so think through your in-laws and tell me if you'd like to have that enacted. 
So you're married, uh, your husband dies, which God killed Ur. So that means Onan has to step in and he has to marry, uh, become function as the husband of, uh, of Tamar. Uh, But not only is Ur selfish, so is Onan selfish. You see, when he does that, uh, let's assume he has three kids. When he does that, if he then functions in that role and Tamar has kids, the, the inheritance of his three kids must be divided among however many kids uh, uh, Tamar has. So let's say she has three. Now, if you're getting, you know, uh, $120,000, uh, your, your uh, you know, uh, total so each kid's getting 40, all of a sudden each kid's getting 20. And we discover in the passage that Onan went into her. He had sex with her, but, uh, but refused to impregnate her. It's very graphic. He spilled the semen on the ground is what scripture says here. And so God saw his selfishness and God saw his wickedness and God killed him too. And there's no more mention of God in 38. None. The Lord's name isn't mentioned. His involvement isn't referenced. Uh, It seems like God goes silent here. And when God goes silent, every one of us in this room, our first reaction is to question his sovereignty. God, are you in charge God, where are you? Why did I get unfairly treated? You can imagine what's running through Tamar's mind now. Husband number one, uh, God acted wickedly. If you're a thinking person, you've got to wonder, why didn't she become pregnant by him? Uh, What happened there? And then you've got uh, Onan who refuses to impregnate her. He's dead now. Uh, She is a widow twice over. Judah is in charge of her. It's the way it works. And so he orders her into widowhood. She must go back home and live with her mom and dad and put on the clothes of a widow and live as a widow. And he makes a promise to her, when my boy Shelah is old enough, I'll give him to you. Well, I mean, whoopee. You're, you're, you know, O for two, Judah. The selfishness we will see in a moment of Judah, but the obvious selfishness of, of Ur and Onan, his two sons. Selfishness in others is frustrating to us, isn't it? On Monday night. Mark Ellis came into the deacons meeting. If you know Mark, Mark is never flustered. Like the man just rolls through life. I'm sure at some points at home he gets flustered, but he puts on a good front here. So just kidding. He's just never flustered, but he was flustered. And uh, I said, Mark, what in the world? Or somebody did. And on his way here, he passed, he passed, he passed, passed his Hawkins as he was passed Hawkins uh, headed toward grace. A car was going toward Marion and decided that, uh, that he wanted Mark's lane too. 
came over toward Mark. Mark moved over, but not enough. That car swiped him, took his mirror off, and kept going, never slowed down. Mark had no idea who had done this to his car, almost ran him off the road. The person just kept going. That's the height of selfishness, isn't it? We hate that. And while a swiped car can easily be fixed, a side-swiped life is another story. And it is the selfishness of others that can cause us to cry out to God and ask Him where He is. God, where are you? Why haven't you stepped up? Why haven't you uh, dealt with this situation? Why must I keep going on and on and on when I am surrounded by self-centeredness or selfishness? Tamar's situation appears to be hopeless. She even has to wear the clothes of a widow. But then things go from bad to worse. And in the bad to worse, we discover that God is indeed sovereign over ignorance. He's sovereign over selfishness, but he's also sovereign over ignorance. Then Judah said to Tamar, verse 11, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Look at this. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. What? Judah thinks it's Tamar's fault. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Judah somehow has a superstitious view that Tamar must be a black widow, right? She's the one causing the death of his two sons, both of whom described here by Moses, the writer of Genesis, as having acted wickedly and the Lord put them to death. But Judah is ignorant of the Lord's work here. How often do we... Assume things that aren't true and in our ignorance perpetuate sin and problems when clearly God knows what's going on. Judah was ignorant and in his ignorance made a decision to put Tamar into widowhood and as we discover, never to release her from that. She would be a widow the rest of her life and wear the clothes of a widow. She would grieve until her death. You've got to think that when she went home, uh, she had sisters who had had children. She longed for that. She was surrounded. And, and so, so it was assumed, most likely communicated from Judah, that uh, she was the reason his boys died when she had zero to do with their death. We work with such short-sightedness, don't we? We think we figure things out. We judge from a distance. We, uh, we sit back in our armchairs on Monday morning and, and Monday morning spiritually quarterback uh, into the people's lives with whom we come into contact when we operate most of the time from ignorance. Ignorance. And Judah did. She feels alienated, isolated, 
and labeled. I ran across this story this week that just surfaced this year. Uh, we see this and we go, okay, what, what might the cost be? Check out this man's story of where ignorance cost him tremendously. Note his response to it. So could you imagine 20 some years of your life taken from you, wrongly convicted, wrongly accused? Just kind of tuck that away for a moment. We'll see it surface again. God is sovereign over ignorance. Third, God is sovereign over rationalization. He is sovereign over rationalization. This is where, and Chris, if you can bring the lights up just a tad. This is where we uh, discover um, most of us kind of kick our own plan into gear. We rationalize and Tamar does. So years passed, Judah's wife dies and Judah decides to go up to Timnah and see a friend and Tamar hears of it. So Tamar takes off her clothes of a grieving widow and she puts on the clothes of a prostitute. Yeah. She dresses herself and then seats herself at an interesting place called Enaim. And Enaim is just fascinating. You can't make this stuff up, right? The, the word uh, of the location means eyes. So 
So Judah is still ignorant, right? His ignorance is supreme through this passage. And so he sees Tamar, her face is covered, where she is seated, gives her away as the prostitute. His wife has died. He's overcome with sexual desire. And so what does he do? He solicits her, his own daughter-in-law. And he brings her in, no clue who her, who she is. In our day of electricity, you find this hard to believe, but there's no electricity. Easy to disguise oneself. She says to him, what is your payment? He says, I'll give you a young goat. She says, do you have it with you? No. Then what will you commit to give me? What is your pledge saying that the goat is coming? And he gives to her the three most important things that a man from an identification point of view in that day could give. It would be like you giving away your cell phone, your uh, uh, social security number, and your credit card with the maximum limit on it. He hands to her his signet, his cord, and his staff. Let me tell you what those are. The signet was the uh, symbol that symbolized Judah's clan. And if Judah ever made a business deal, that's what he would use. You would take that signet, get it hot, put it in clay, and then it would leave the imprint in the clay. He is so overcome with sexual desire, he's willing to give away his signet. Uh, the cord is what attached to the signet. So it was uh, what he carried the signet with. His staff was what every traveler or shepherd needed. Judah was both in this case. Uh, and at the top of the staff typically was the inscription bearing Judah's name and his tribe. He gives those to her. They, they have sex. And he leaves. Scripture vividly describes her changing back into the clothes of a widow. This is rationalization, right? I've been unfairly treated by. So I'll take matters into my own hands. So she goes home. Widow's clothes. This guy's worked. She's got all of these identifying elements that belong to Judah. What happens? Judah sends the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Says, go find that cult prostitute. Judah's ignorance coupled with his selfishness, right? Go find that cult prostitute. Give her the goat. Bring back my signet, my cord, and my staff. The Adulamite goes. There's no cult prostitute. She only sat there once. The opportune time from her point of view, from her rationalized plan to get out of widowhood. The Adulamite sends word back to Judah. Judah says, well, then forget it. Three months pass. And she begins to show Tamar is indeed pregnant by her own father-in-law. Well, who's in charge of her? Judah. 
where it gets to Judah. And Judah orders her to be removed from her home and burned. Okay, stoned, burned. Burned is the worst. Reserved in the Old Testament for the most severe offenses. But what does she have in her possession? The signet, the cord, the staff. And what does she do? She says, before you take me out and tie me to the stake, the one who owns these is the one by whom I am pregnant. Go find him. And Judah is outed. And you thought the Bible was boring. That's what I say to my Old Testament students. So, what happens? You're not going to believe it, and some of you won't like it. Judah repents. He does. Scripture says, and Judah, he owned it, and then he said, Scripture says, And he knew her no more. That means no more sexual relations with her. No more, well, I've already started this. I may as well finish. No, no, no. He repented. Judah, who is selfish. Judah, who is ignorant. Judah, who himself rationalizes, repented. And some of you think that there's no hope for you. Others of you have your justice meter flying off the chart right now. You liked my story. It's not mine. It's God's. Until Judah repented. Right? You're ready for him to be burned. Tie him to the stake. You're thinking. Look what he did to Tamar. He raised these unruly boys. And look what they did. Let's burn Judah. You're thinking. Two boys are born. Tamar. As far as we know, remained a single widow the rest of her life. Raised two boys, verses 27 through 29, the time of her labor came. There were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his head, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Aren't you glad it doesn't go down like that these days? His name means breach. Uh, That's so nice to grow up with. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. 
Randy Alcorn in his book, or Alcorn says this, if we come to see the purpose of the universe as God's long-term glory rather than our short-term happiness, then we will undergo a critical paradigm shift in tackling the problem of evil and suffering. The world is going terribly wrong. God is going to fix it. First, for his eternal glory, and second, for our eternal good. Amen? God is going to fix it. That gets us back to Matthew 1, 1 through 3. Whoever would have thought that Matthew, the Jewish writer of the Gospels, whose audience is so Jewish and knows all of the Old Testament, would say the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so far so good. Even with, with David's mistakes, he's the greatest king Israel had ever had. Abraham, even with his foolish mistakes, was uh, lauded and praised. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of... Who? Say it loud, class. Who? Judah. Judah. The father of Judah. All right, so so if I'm writing this story, I I, I prefer prefer not to pick Judah. I want to go to chapter 37 of Genesis, right? I prefer to go to chapter 39. Why? Because that's my favorite dude in the Old Testament. His name is Joseph. Oh, Joseph. I mean, Joseph is the guy who gets it right. Joseph is the guy sold into slavery by Judah and his brothers. 37. 38 is inserted, not accidentally, inserted into Genesis. Then we get to 39. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. Unlike Judah, uh, Potiphar's wife comes on to him. And unlike Judah, Joseph runs. And Joseph says no. I, I mean, we're on a roller coaster, aren't we? Because we want Judah tied to the stake. We want Joseph elevated. We, we'd celebrate Joseph and go, yes, there's our man. And so Joseph runs. And when Joseph runs from her, Joseph is unfairly accused, thrown into prison, isn't he? You see, it's entirely possible that we're in a room full of selfish, ignorant, Rationalizing people, you and me. So what does Joseph do? In prison, he he rises to the occasion. He lives for God. He honors God. God's favor is on him. He becomes prime minister of Egypt. Wow, what a story to tell is that. Uh, Matthew, Matthew, where's Joseph? It's uh, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by, by who church? Tamar. Tamar. Shows up in the list. And some of you think that you've somehow usurped God's sovereign ability to make something out of the mess you've made in your life. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, don't have it on the screen, but you need to write it down. First Peter 2.20. I'll read it to you, verses through 25. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I wish Tamar had known that, right? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. All right, so so we get pumped about Joseph, but Joseph was a sinner and Judah was an obvious sinner. But, but could I introduce you to Jesus? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He wasn't a rationalist. He, he was completely selfless. He definitely wasn't ignorant. Uh, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. You say, Jerry, what if I'm caught up in a Tamar-like mess? What if that is me? If I'm caught up in a Tamar-like mess, what if I'm the one being treated unfairly? Or, or what if I'm Judah? I'm the Judah. What do you do? One word I leave you with today. Trust. It's what Judah didn't do. It's what Tamar didn't do. It's what Joseph didn't do perfectly. But did you get here? Jesus, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Johnny Erickson Tata, who through that accident ended up paralyzed for life, says this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's why we have Christmas. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Judah didn't get that. Ur and Onan and Shelah definitely didn't get that. Lest you glorify Tamar and justify her sinful reaction to unfair treatment. She was a rationalist. She didn't get it either. Joseph got close to it. Jesus trusted the one who judges justly. He kept on trusting him. We're back to Brad and Julie now. Brad who's lost his job. Julie, the single woman at 35 who would love to be married. Well, what should they do? Trust. 
trust God. Trust. Same thing you, you got to do. Do you believe he's sovereign? If you do, if you really do, you can't help but trust him. Let me pray for you.